This week, we are talking about a case that is so utterly frustrating, I almost couldn't cover it. What might have seemed like a tragic house fire actually may have been a masterful kidnapping. And to this day, no one really knows what happened. I'm talking about the disappearance of the Sauter children. We are your hosts, Helen Allen. And Sherry Ferreira. This is The Chalk Line. Good evening, everyone, and the highlights of the news this Thursday. So let's just get started and jump right into the family. George and Jenny Sauter are the parents, they are married, and they have nine children. Work. Yeah, that's a lot of children. Actually, forgive me, they have ten children. Nine were in the house at the time. Uh, the tenth child who is not present is named Joseph. He went by Joe. He was away in the army at the time because this all takes place in 1945. Okay. They have Sylvia, who is the youngest, she's two, Marion, who's 17, John, who's 23, George Jr., who's 16, Maurice, who's 14, Martha, who's 12, Louis, who's 9, Jenny, who's 8, and Betty, who's 5. Stop! So, you don't really have to know all of the names of the kids and their ages and whatever, but I just kind of wanted to say them so you know, like, it's all over the charts. They've yeah. got ages all up and down, you know? Of course. Oh, my God. Here's some background on George Sauter, the father of the family. Gotcha. <clears throat> he lives in this, like, well, the family lives in this small coal mining town called Fayetteville, West Virginia. It's in Appalachia. Gotcha. Um, this town particularly was home to, like, a huge Italian-American population. Um, and most of the community knew the Sauters as this, like, respectable, upstanding family. George Sauter um, was originally Giorgio Sadu. Oh. Yeah, cool, right? He immigrated from Sardinia um, in Italy in 1908 when he was just 13 years old. And he came with his brother who left literally right after they passed through customs on Ellis Island. So, like, I don't really know oh. why. And George honestly never even talks about why he came here to begin with. Then by the age of 50, George, after working tons of different types of jobs ended up owning his own truck hauling business. So Bank. he did pretty well for himself. Bank. Yeah. Um, World War II had just ended on December 2nd, 1945, and only eight months prior, communist partisans had killed the fascist dictator, you might know him, Benito Mussolini. Sounds familiar. Right. So this left, obviously, Italy pretty divided. Supporters of Mussolini were obviously pissed. Yeah. And George was, like, very outspoken about the fact that he was very against Mussolini. Just another thing for you to know about him. <laughs> I just no, thought it was, was a little George. Anyway, so obviously he had this, like, dis distrust amongst, like, all of the people who were immigrants that loved Mussolini. Because... That's not how he felt. Yeah. Like the people who lived in West Virginia. Yes. And like the place all where he lived. of the people that like were on the other side of him, but in the same community as him. Okay. You know. Gotcha. So this story takes place 1945 on Christmas Eve in Fayetteville, West Virginia, where they live. Oh, Christmas Eve. <laughs> I know. I almost was going to be like, you know what? Let's save this to be a Christmas episode. But then yeah. I was like, Christmas in July, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so, like, you remember Christmas when you were young. The younger children were literally, like, on this Christmas time high. And they were just, like, so excited. They got some toys from their older sister. And, like, they were just really excited. So they asked Jenny, their mom, if they could stay up late. And honestly, Jenny has a two-year-old. So she's like, I don't care what you do. (laughs) She she hasn't (laughs) ten kids. She She hasn't slept in years. I'm justifying it. Like, she has a two-year-old. But then she has a five-year-old. Then she has a six-year-old. Then she has a seven-year-old. And it's just, like, all of it. I'm just kidding about those ages. Do not write those down. She does have a lot of kids at a lot of ages. So... The b- is tired. Yeah, you know? of course. So at 10 p.m., she's like, yeah, you can stay up later, but just make sure that the older boys, Maurice and Louis, Maurice is 14 and Louis is 9, she's like, just make sure they're still awake and before they go to bed, put the cows in and feed the chickens and that's that. So you can imagine what their house is like. Chaotic. Ten kids, cows, chickens. It's chaotic. Okay. It's kind of like the home I grew up okay. in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's literally the home I grew up in. George and the two oldest boys, John and George Jr., had spent the day working, and they, George Jr. and John, already were asleep. John was 23, George Jr. was 16. The ages truly don't matter, but I'm just telling you them anyways, because I'm really proud of myself for getting it down. Good. You know? As you should. (laughs) Let them know. Yeah. Let our listeners know. So, after reminding the children of their chores, Jenny takes Sylvia, the two-year-old, upstairs with her, and they just go to bed together. The telephone rings at about 12.30 in the morning, and it wakes Jenny up. She goes downstairs to answer it, and it's like this woman on the other line. Jenny does not recognize it, and she's, like, asking for a name that Jenny's never heard before. So she's like, okay. And she can hear, like, in the background laughter and clinking of glasses. So Jenny's just kind of like, okay, I don't know if they're, like, prank calling me, they're at a party, or, like... Yeah. what but she basically just chalks it up to like okay i think you got the wrong number and she also like throws shade on this woman by being like she had a weird laugh too <laughs> as she should as a mother like, of 10 answering the phone. in the middle of the night yes uh. throw shade jenny so jenny hangs up and she goes back to bed but as she does she notices that the lights downstairs are still on and the curtains were not drawn which is like two things that the kids always do when they stay up later than their parents they're really good about like shutting down the house and like locking up and all that stuff i'm assuming they're used to having a lot of chores around the house to like right i mean there's 10 of them put them to work that's what (laughs) i do like you know i'm not gonna have 10 kids but if i do best believe they're running this household with me yes marianne had also she was 17 at the time she had fallen asleep on the living room couch so jenny kind of just like assumed that the other kids like had already gone up to their room which was in the attic that was like where they slept the house is like a farmhouse kind of thing like so it was super big and had like you know different stories to it and some of the kids shared bedrooms she closed the curtains turns out the lights and she just goes back to bed at about 1 a.m she was like half asleep kind of and she was just like woken back up by the sound of this like big object hitting the roof and then she hears like this like loud bang from it and then this kind of like rolling noise she says but then after hearing nothing she like went back to sleep and i'm like it's christmasy is that santa (laughs) (laughs) i guess i've been good like he's here (laughs) she's like oh my I thought he would never come. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so she's literally like, I don't know what that is, but whatever. And she just goes whatever. back to sleep. After another half hour, she woke up again smelling smoke. When she gets up again, she finds that the room that George used for his office was on fire. 
like, kind of around where the telephone line and the fuse box is. Okay. So she wakes him up, and then he, in turn, wakes up the older sons, who you remember went to bed earlier with him. Yeah. Both parents and four of the children, Marion, Sylvia, John, and George Jr., were able to escape the house. They are now frantic and yelling at all of the children who are sleeping upstairs because the five other children who are not in the house share two bedrooms in the attic. Um, So they're screaming to the kids that are upstairs, but there's, like, no response. Nothing that they can see is moving. But they couldn't go up to them because the stairs up to the attic were already on fire. And I just want to note, this is something that I found on Wikipedia, and I don't know really, I'm going to say this maybe a few times if I ever use anything from Wikipedia in this episode, but John said in his first, John is one of the boys, said in his first police interview that after the fire he went up to the attic to tell his siblings who were sleeping there but then he like later changes his story to say that he just like called up to the attic and he didn't actually see them so like i don't really know take that with a grain but of salt definitely but something to think about yeah definitely so then they start their like efforts to find help um and rescue the children who were upstairs but it was like unexpectedly complicated like you think like oh like just call the police and then they'll alert the fire department. The phone didn't work, so Marion had to run to the neighbor's house to call the fire department. They were, like, weirdly not able to reach the operator. Like, the operator just didn't answer. So, like, that's probably not an okay thing. But it was 1945 and anything goes. God. That happened. And then, I guess, like, this driver on a nearby road had, like, seen the flames. So he called from a tavern that was nearby, which was also unsuccessful because he wasn't able to get the operator. Or, like, the, I don't know. It said he wasn't able to get the operator or, like, the phone was broken. Which Wait, that's which one so is it? weird. Yeah. I don't know why there's not a consensus on, like, why he wasn't able to call, but whatever. Eventually, somebody does get to the fire department and they call them. Thank At this God. point, like, obviously the family's helpless. So, George, barefoot, climbs the wall and breaks open an attic window and he cuts his arm in the process, like, because how would he not? Like, I would be just beating the hell oh up. Oh, my God. Like, I would turn into Spider-Man. I don't... But, I like, yeah, he's a father how... with adrenaline running through his veins right now, so he fully was, was Spider-Man oh, walking Spider-Man. on the walls. So he and his sons intended to, like, use this ladder to the attic to rescue the other children, but it, for some reason, wasn't where they usually kept it, and they could not find it anywhere. They also attempted to, like, fill this water barrel... That they have, um, because you remember they have, like, cows and stuff, so it's, like, yeah, tons chickens. of animals in this farm. Oh, my. Yeah. And they have, like, this water barrel. It was frozen solid, because, you know, it's Christmas. So oh. they weren't able to use that. So then George is like, I'm going to pull both of my trucks. He has, like, these coal trucks. And he's like, I'm going to pull them both towards the house, and I'm just going to be able to, like, stand on the truck and get to the window. So he tries that. And both of the trucks are not working and will not turn on. I mean, they're thinking so quick. Right. I can't imagine. And he's also, like, thinking in his head, like, what? These worked literally yesterday. Why are they not working today? Sauce. So it's crazy. So frustrated, the members of the Sauter family who did escape obviously had no choice now but to watch the house burn down for 45 minutes with their siblings and children inside. They obviously were to assume that the children died in this fire because how do you not when you're in the attic and the house is on fire and no one's going to help you? 
the fire department, I guess, was, like, low on manpower because because of the war. Oh, and I was going to say, what does that even mean? Like, know, just be there. Power. It's like, hello, yeah. somebody caught the call, no. <laughs> but apparently, because of the war, they were low on manpower, and also, they, like, relied on individual firefighters to call each other. I don't know if this is because it was Christmas Eve, or if it is oh, just poor planning on their behalf. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But I guess like they just didn't play phone tag. Like I, I don't, I don't even know what it was. Honestly, I'm not even gonna make excuses for them because they didn't show up until 8 a.m. the next morning, which is seven hours after the fire started. Chief F. J. Morris said the next day that the already slow response was further hampered by his inability to drive the fire truck. He had to like wait for someone who could drive who was available. So I'm thinking he was probably drunk on Christmas yeah. Eve. <laughs> Right? I mean... I'm thinking he was a little buzzed. Yeah, and he was like, you guys, I'm really sorry last night I was drunk. Sorry, I couldn't save your family. But, like, firefighters have lives, too, you know? No excuses. They showed up at 8 a.m. the next morning, and obviously the house was literal a pile of ashes. The firefighters, one of them was actually Jenny's brother, which I couldn't find any more on that. And so I don't know. Anyway, but... They literally couldn't do anything but look through the ashes because there was nothing to say. I mean, yeah, by what the time are you doing? It was yeah. like, thank you for your help, but we'll take it from here. Yeah. Goodbye. Are you going to, like, get a dustpan? I don't like, know what I don't, the, Are you what helping to clean up? Yeah. Thank you. So, anyways, by 10 a.m., Morris, the, the chief fired the... The, the, <laughs> the Hello? What? I don't know what's going on with me. Chief Morris um, told the Sodders that they did not find any bones as they may have expected to. If the children had been in the house and it burned. But, according to Wikipedia, so again, take it with a grain of salt, they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs, but chose not to tell the family. But only Wikipedia says this, so seriously, take it with a grain of salt. I'm curious if that is true. Were they small enough that they were like, this isn't really anything to, like, bring off? Well, side note that, because we'll talk about that in a minute, in a little bit. It had been noted also by modern fire professionals that their search was, like, cursory at best. So, you know, nobody's saying that they deserve an award for the way that they acted okay. on this fine evening. <laughs> I mean, showing up seven hours, like, yeah. yeah. I can see that. I mean, you could have literally driven from other states' fire right. departments right. and shown up. Like, who didn't call Virginia or right. anywhere else that neighbors West Virginia? Because I wouldn't know. But, <laughs> I don't know, maps? <laughs> That's going to be so mad. Um, I feel like every episode... Every episode I have something to say that Matt's going to be mad at me for. Like, the dollar last time. I was like, who's on the the $5 bill? Still not... You know, he texted me the next morning, and he was like... Who did he say? Lincoln. Oh, my God. Just randomly? Just a random text that said Lincoln. And I was like, hello? (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, it's Lincoln on the $5 bill. And I was like, are you mad at me? Anyway, listen to the last episode if you yeah. need this. Uh, actually, two episodes ago? Yeah. I don't know. Listen to them all. Why are you right. just listening to this one and right. you haven't heard the others? Show some love. Weird move. Anyway. <laughs> so the fire chief says the children were probably literally cremated and their skin and bones included. But I would like to point out that bones would be left behind. Okay. I was going to say, I'm not an expert on cremation, but I the bones would still be left behind then. Right. 
And we will talk to later an expert on cremation. So just, oh, just you okay. wait. Fragments of the bone, at least, should have been left behind still. And also, I, like, this is something that I have never experienced myself, but people say that flesh, like, has this smell when it burns that is unlike anything else. Nobody who was nearby or witnessed it said there was any sort of bad smell besides fire. Like, no, like, people would have smelled the burning flesh if people were dying in that house, you know? Oh, yeah. That five is just a thing. Five right? You have five people. The coroner's office issues death certificates about a week later. They chalk it up to bad wiring in the house as the cause, which we'll touch on that a little later. And the basement of the house remained, and George, like, tore it down to make a memorial eventually of the kids. They made, like, a memorial garden out of it. George and Jenny, at this point are like, our kids aren't dead. There's no evidence of it. Like, we don't buy it. They think that their kids were kidnapped and that the fire was to set everyone off. I'll tell you some weird occurrences that kind of made them think this. Okay. In the fall before the fire, an insurance salesman went to the house, and when he realized he wasn't going to be successful in a sale there, he, like, was pissed and yelled at George, quote, Your goddamn house is going up in smoke, and your children are going to be destroyed. You're going to pay for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. So you're telling me they have this man arrested and in jail and in cuffs already. They tracked him down because that's a good Like, he did it, I feel like. He did it. Case closed. That's a little bit... That's that's really specific to this case. No? Yeah, it's like flat out everything about this case. He said he was going to do it, and it sounds like he did it. Mm -hmm. Oh, and motive. You've been making marks about Mussolini. Yeah, it's all it's wrapped up tight in a bow. Okay. Here's the thing. George is the only guy who witnessed this guy do this. So we have George's word, but where's this guy? Let's find him. Uh, Yes, but also we have George's word. And no one else. That's what makes this difficult is almost all of the claims you'll see are just coming from the Sodders themselves. There's not too many outside witnesses. In the days before the fire, two of the Sodder children saw a man in a car watching the younger Sodder children come home from school on Highway 21. Nothing really was chalked up about this, but they were just like, huh, noted. There was also in the past a man seeking work, and, like, I guess he just, like, wanted to, like, do some kind of handiwork or any kind of yard work or anything like that. And basically he took it upon himself to, like, look around in the back while he was, like, talking to George about doing work and George was like I don't really need anything done and the kid was like I don't know if he was a kid or a man but he was like okay well just wandering around back and he like warns George about this pair of fuse boxes that were going to quote cause a fire someday and George was like no 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 I literally just had a stove put in and I had the electric company tell me that the wiring in my house was all safe So, at the time, he just kind of chalked it up as, like, some guy who was annoyed that he didn't get work and was kind of, like, grasping at straws for something to do. Yeah. He didn't really think anything of it. Remember also that the phone rang the night of the fire and Jenny went to answer it? Yeah, with that girl with that weird voice. Yeah. So, and she noted that the lights were still on downstairs. Yeah. So, if it were, in fact, faulty wiring, there would have been no power to the house. And as you can remember, it was Christmas Eve. They had Christmas lights on outside their house that they could literally see as the fire was burning until the fire burned them out. 
So oh like, my god! Okay, so what is this? Doesn't sound like faulty wiring to me. What is this false narrative it, that they're trying to push it across? Is a false narrative. <laughs> it really is. Um, I still don't know what the bang on the roof following by a rolling sound could have been. Maybe it was Santa. He saw right. the fire and he was like, I am Audi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry. I, I'm on a schedule. Maybe Santa took these kids because he was like, guys, you need me more than right. I need you. <laughs> um, and also a witness to the fire saw a man with a block and tackle, which is like something that can be used to remove engines from cars or like to carry super, super heavy things. But no one really knew anything past that. Um, but maybe that is why George's trucks wouldn't work, if you could remember. So they saw them near the truck. Or yeah, kind of near, near the, the property okay. with the block and tackle. But Weird. also, like, if it were used to remove an engine, my thought is, like, well, engines are big now. And engines in 1945 were bigger, bigger, bigger. Chickenormous. So wh- where did he bring the engines yeah. and no one saw him lugging around the engines? I but, don't... I mean, that does make me think, did they have neighbors that were close by that could have seen more? I mean, there are witnesses. I don't know exactly, but, like, there are witnesses to things that happened. So, like, I feel like somebody would have... I mean... One of those have I to live be in, true. Like, the middle of, like... There's no neighbors around me, really. Yeah. Not true at all. <laughs> Why did I say that? I think you're thinking of, I'm like, going with properties. It's okay. Anyway... If I saw somebody lugging around an engine, I feel like it would... I would hear it, too. Like, right? Like, anyway. No matter how far you live, unless it's, like, miles away. But, like, if you live just, like, one square away from someone, you can hear them lugging around an engine, I feel like, on the street. Right. Or see it, or I don't know. Sylvia also found this, like, hard rubber object in the yard, which they think, like, maybe caused the noise that woke up Jenny, but they don't get more specific on what the rubber object was and i'm like rubber woke her up but what is it maybe i don't know how how heavy rubber is but assuming that it was heavy maybe it could have been used as a distraction for someone that was someone inside threw the it house. up yeah it could have been like maybe a team of people yeah. working on this after further inspection from george he believed that the object was a napalm pineapple bomb similar to those used in war at the time Um, but as you can see, this is my issue with this case, and I don't want to throw any shade on George, because he's a grieving father, and I don't know what it was like, but it feels like everything is coming from him. So, when I'm looking at this case, I could see why an investigator would be like, I don't know, dude, you're the only one bringing me any facts. Yeah, I mean, they're going to be forced to ask these hard questions, and especially if all this information is coming from one person. And even the children's account of that weird man on the highway, like, the father could have potentially... Talked to them, or been like, have you seen anybody? And then they were like, oh, well, we saw one guy, but it's, like, just some guy in his car. Like, I don't know. So, I'm just like... I do want to take this, like, for what it is, that, like, these things are coming from George, or some of them, you know? Yeah. Um, so, Jenny, the bad concerned mom that she is, who misses her kids, started burning animal bones to see if it would leave remains. I don't know where she's getting these animals. Um, I don't think they were alive. Okay. <laughs> every source that talked about it, like, didn't say, like, Jenny became an animal killer, they just said, yeah. like, Jenny was doing this. And I'm like, okay, okay so we're not going to look into it anymore. I don't know. I, I, I assume the animals were dead already. Okay. I don't know where she was getting dead animals. That's but fine. anyway, it did leave bones behind. So she spoke to a crematorium expert 
um, a crematorium employee, excuse me, an expert at cremating. Yeah. And basically they told her that in cremation at 2,000 degrees for two hours, there are still bones left behind. The solder home only burned for, as you can remember, 45 minutes. So there definitely should have been bones behind. And also, like, some appliances, like that fancy stove they bought, yeah. were still there. So you okay, tell me so why appliances still were there but kids weren't? Like, their at, bones would show. At this point, after excitedly wait, waiting for this crematorium expert, I am of the belief that they were taken. Right. Or I, my thing is, like, the fire experts said that, it like, they didn't check it well. They didn't do a good job. So I don't know if I believe that the kids were kidnapped or if I just believe that there were bones and no one found them. It was just work. Yeah. You never know. I mean, it's so long ago, it's hard to say. Um, a witness, a woman, did say that she saw the children in a car drive by while the fire was happening. So that, uh, I don't know if she saw the specific children or if she saw children and then believes that it were those specific children, but, you know. Also, 50 miles west of Fayetteville, a woman in a, at a truck stop said that she served the kids breakfast and there was this, like, car with Florida license plates at the tourist court, too. So she just thought that those were maybe connected. In Charleston, which is nearby to Fayetteville, a woman okay. at a hotel said to the police, the children were accompanied by two men and two women, all of Italian extraction. I do not remember the exact date. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to talk to me or allow me to talk to these children. I sensed that I was being frozen out, so I didn't say anything further. They left early the next morning. So those are some sightings. Also, a few years later, George saw a picture of school children in the newspaper from New York, and one of the kids looked exactly like his missing child, Betty. So George drove all the way to New York to talk to the family of the child, but they refused to talk to him. I mean, that's just so heartbreaking. Right. And it's also, like, I I was trying to put myself in the shoes of, like, the family and be like, well, why wouldn't they talk to him? But if that da- that daughter of theirs is adopted, maybe they were, like, in fear that he is the parent and, you of know, course. is coming back to, like, wreak havoc or try to get their child back. Who knows, you know? So I understand yeah. why someone would refuse to talk to George. And also he was grieving and probably crazy when he went oh, to Oh, not. Like, you know it, what I mean? I mean he wasn't in his it, right mind at the time. Exactly. So. And also it's completely up to their discretion to, I mean, it's their kid. They yeah. feel like they have to keep their kid safe. So I don't know. Um, George and Jenny also tried to involve the FBI in 1947. Oh, they said, F- local police. They did. <laughs> they said, they we're were going like, to the FBI. Okay, you guys aren't going to do anything? Uh, let me see the manager. Right. <laughs> 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 that just tickled me pink. <laughs> But the Fayetteville police and the fire departments actually denied the FBI's help and did not let them get involved. So that's why George and Jenny were like, okay, uh, uh, uh. We are hiring a private investigator. We will get this done on our own. As they should. As they should. So they hire C.C. Tinsley. C.C. Tinsley also got the family to hire a pathologist, Oscar B. Hunter, to excavate the dirt that covered the solder basement. 
he found four shards of human vertebrae. So he sends it to the Smithsonian for analysis. Now they're taking seriously. Okay, yeah. Like, we are not playing anymore. Straight to the Smithsonian. Good. So they hypothesized that the bones were from like a 16 to 17 year old person. However, the oldest missing solder child was a 14 year old boy, making it improbable. Um, I don't know. I was also considering when I was reading this, like, would a 14-year-old boy be a lot smaller than a 16-year-old boy? Because it's probably a prepubescent boy. So when they're saying 16, 17, it's probably a big difference between a 14-year-old. You know what I mean? Boys go through puberty a little later. They're a little bigger by 16, 17. So I don't know. They chalked it up to being improbable. The bones also had no evidence that they had been exposed to fire, so, likely, um, they think it originated from the dirt that George Sauter used to fill the basement after when they were, like, creating I mean, a memorial. even creepier. Yeah. So, I would also like to look into that, but, oh, you know, that's yeah, another that's for case, another episode. It's okay. It's okay. It's <laughs> this was all before DNA evidence came into play, but the bones were given back to George, and now they just, like, don't know where they are. They as in George doesn't know where he put them? Like, Anybody. I- Nobody knows where the bones are. So. I hate when this happens. Like, just close I know, it's like, hey, those are bones. You probably just shouldn't give them to that civilian. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, right? Whether they're his children's bones or not, wouldn't yeah. they be best sitting in a lab? Have him come down to the lab. Like, I just don't. What does he need those vertebrae for? <sighs> right. Why does he want them? <laughs> Why did they give them to George? <laughs> George is grieving. I don't even get it. So, this is when West Virginia's governor, Oki L. Patterson, calls a hearing in the state capitol building in Charleston, West Virginia. This is, like, after the Smithsonian released its findings, and he just officially ruled the Sauter children's case as closed. He told George and Jimmy... Jimmy. I'm sorry. I'm so stressed because of everything in this case that I'm like, I don't even know anybody's name anymore. I started off so strong knowing every age. Oh, you're tell you one so of them good. Now. It's okay. <laughs> he told George and Jenny that their search was essentially hopeless. So this leads to George and Jenny being pissed. And they set up a billboard on Route 16 advertising their missing children. It stayed there for 40 years. That's a That's lot a of lot money and like to keep to up. keep that. Yeah. So the billboard flat out did the police dirty. <laughs> Good. It said basically like, no, 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 these theories are wrong, honey. And also it pointed out, like, what did the police even have to gain for all of these years of suffering and injustice? At this point, it's like them not wanting to admit that they are wrong. Yeah, and I don't know what it is. I mean, forty years of having that up, like. The p- turnover. It wasn't like, like a nudge, nudge, and the police weren't like, "Hey, I guess like we should just like maybe look into this." Exactly. Like even today, it's like I feel like we could ask around. around. Just a little <laughs> just bit. See if anybody saw it. Right. <laughs> just. I don't know. Just like it doesn't even have to be a full investigation. Just like we hey, just, you like, saw something. Ask a few questions. Right. Look at a few notebooks. So people around town. Here's what they thought. They thought, one, the mafia could have had involvement, the Italian mafia. Okay, I don't know if I watched many movies, but that's literally where my mind went. Oh, my God. (laughs) But seriously, because they were like, I don't know, like, Mussolini was a very powerful man, and, like, you got somebody in West Virginia. But that's what I'm also like, okay, yes, Mussolini was, like, this powerful, powerful man, but this is Appalachia. (laughs) 
Okay. Like, is so, are his people from Italy really, like, going out, out there, there and, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. And sure. honestly, I'm not going to question it because it's okay. the mafia. Right. And we're going to leave it there. What's the next theory? Another theory is the children were sold to an orphanage, which, oh. you know, makes sense if he did see Betty in the newspaper in New York. Right. It would make sense that she was adopted, and that is why the parents didn't want her speaking to him. And we'll never know. And we will never know. Also, a woman sent a f- the family a letter saying that the oldest missing daughter, Martha, was in a convent in St. Louis. Someone in Florida also said that the missing children were living with Jenny's distant relatives. So George investigated all of these but came up with nothing. I mean, it seems like George is the police... The police station. George is the police station, the fire department. <laughs> He's everywhere. He has he all these all hats. the things. Where's all the hats? <laughs> he is truly a man of many shades. A letter with a picture also was sent specifically to Jenny, not the family, with no return address, but it was postmarked in Kentucky. Um, it was a man in his mid-20s, which could have been Louie, who was nine at the time of the fire. And he looked very similar to Louis. He had the same eyebrows, hair, eyes, and nose. On the back of the picture, it said, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, Lil Boys, A90132 or 35. I mean, if this is not true, or if this is, I mean, just torment. Well, and I'm also like, is that a license plate? Is Ooh. that, like, what is that? Is that an address? Like, what is A90132 or 35? And if it is a license plate, it's like, did he just see it quickly and he got mm-hmm. away and the other four kids were in the car? Or, like, what is that? But that's all I have for you on that. Because they hired a private detective to go to Kentucky and investigate, and the detective was never heard from again. So some people think that the detective just took the money and ran, but... Um, the BuzzFeed Unsolved episode, they, like, actually brought up a good point. Like, that's not, like, a private eye is not really in the business of taking the money and running. Because they work really well on, like, a reputation. Yeah. So, like, I don't see it being probable that he just took the money and ran. Because that's, like, okay, that's the end of your career yeah. in Appalachia. I mean, you're not going like, to have any more clients. I'll yeah, people are going to hear about what you They're going to put you on the billboard. Literally. <laughs> test, test And, like, Denny don't and test George. Jenny and George. Don't test Jenny and George. <laughs> they will literally alter that billboard. <laughs> And also, we're looking for this guy. (laughs) Jenny and George have no time. (laughs) That guy, like, uh, he better not come back. Oh my god! No. So we don't really know what happened to him. And I don't think this shaking in his boots. Straight up, he's like, I don't really know. But anyway, he's listening to this. Yeah. This guy's been missing for like a hundred years and he's listening to this. Hasn't been a hundred years. <laughs> he's like, first thing on my to-do list on a Thursday morning is catch up on the chalk line. Yeah. People are looking for me, but this is what I want to do. We can't touch it. Anyway, detective, nobody's looking for you. You can come out now yeah. and tell us you're, you're our biggest fan. Like I said, at the end of the day, that is all I have to give you. George passed away in 1969 and Jenny in 1989, and the only surviving child of the Sauters is Sylvia, who was two at the time. Um, She believes that her siblings did not die. Jenny Hawthorne, Henthorne? Sorry, I don't, I think it's Henthorne, um, who is Sylvia's daughter, 
um, told the Times West Virginian to post any information on websleuths.com. She said, my mom promised my grandmother that she would never let the story die. That's what my brother and I are doing now. Thanks for listening. You can catch us on Instagram at the Chalkline Pod, Twitter at the Chalkline Pod, and you can follow our YouTube channel. The link is in our Instagram bio. Tune in next Thursday for another story. <laughs>